Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, this morning's gospel reading, we come to the fourth sign in John's gospel. Uh, During the season of Epiphany, we're sitting with these different signs in John's gospel, and this is the fourth one. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, these signs point to something that is true about us, but is also true about God. Uh, But not only do they point to things that are true about God and true about us, but as any sign does, whether that's a sign that tells you the restrooms in the lobby or that there's a a four-way stop coming up here at the intersection, they have a way of orienting us, of telling us where we are, whose we are. So I want to invite us to sit with this story in three simple movements. And the first one, in verses one through four, I'm calling Jesus and his climbing companions. John opens up, Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down with his disciple. In a very similar passage over in Matthew, I love the way Eugene translates the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. It gives a similar image in Matthew chapter 5, where he translates Matthew 5, 1 through 2. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. And those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. It's one of those statements to sort of move quickly past and and move into the content of what it is that Jesus is teaching. But I think this is a moment for us to pause because it is so important for us as followers of Jesus to return again and again and again to a vision of what it is that we're doing. I I joked when we were back at Waldorf uh, that there has to be something more to just getting together on a Sunday morning because if that's all there is, honestly, I'd rather be at brunch. But there's something about gathering, someone got, there we go. So there's something about gathering in this space. What is it that we are trying to do? Maybe the better question is, what is it that God is trying to do? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It's one thing to enter his kingdom, which we do by believing in Jesus. But God's desire for us is not just to enter into his kingdom, but to make a home in his kingdom. And one of the central ways that we make a home in God's kingdom is by progressively coming to know in our bones what Jesus knew to be real, what Jesus knew to be good, what Jesus knew to be beautiful. And to be clear, let's, well, let's be clear on what following Jesus is not about. It is not about mere external conformity. It is not about the profession of perfectly correct doctrine. It's not even about seeking a specific state of mind or a specific type of experience. Following Jesus is about learning from Jesus, climbing alongside Jesus, learning from him how to lead our lives as he would lead our lives if he were us. If Jesus were to come into this world as a single parent, how would he live that existence? If he were to come into the world as a doctor, as a nurse, as a teacher, as a student, as a pastor, as an artist, as a banker, as a financer, as a realer, whatever it is that your vocation, your calling is, Jesus could have come in that space. So to follow Jesus is to learn how he would lead our life if it were his. 
It's more than just mere external conformity or experience. No, God wants to do a much deeper work. It's one of the things Jesus is always coming back to, that there is so much about the human heart that is more beautiful and complex that requires a deeper plowing than just surface-level conformity to rules and laws. John also says that as they're sitting there, he says, now the Passover, the festival of the Jews was near. John, again, here isn't just throwing out random details. He's doing something specific. His hope is that our mind connects to other stories. It connects to the stories of the Passover itself. When God leads the people of Israel out of bondage, out of oppression, into the wilderness so that they may come to the promised land. But John also intends, as he will carry on in his gospel reading, for our minds to then go to other stories of things that Jesus does on the Passover, like the cleansing of the temple or his very own death and resurrection. And all of these stories that John sort of wants us to bring into this moment, what are these stories about? They are stories of God's presence and proximity with people who are marginalized and suffering. And not just standing on the sidelines going, hey, guys, it's going to get better. Just hang on just a little bit longer. But it is rather God in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of the marginalization. There's a story has been told in a number of different places about uh, a a conversation that happens in the midst of uh, a Jewish concentration camp during World War II. There's children in the room, so I'll spare some of the details, but essentially at a moment of great tragedy when one of their community is murdered in front of them, one of the young men, one of the young Jewish men in the community go, where is God? And isn't that the question? It's the question that makes up so many of the Psalms, so many of our prayers and cries, where is God? To which one of the older Jewish men points at the body hanging and says, he's there. In that moment, What he's capturing is that God is not apart from our suffering, but in our suffering, in our marginalization, in our oppression. It's also stories of God's healing. These stories are stories of God's redeeming, of making new, of setting free, of bringing through the wilderness to the promised land. And I want to take a moment to speak to something here, because I think the church has, especially in its more recent history, framed these types of stories in really compressed timelines, that they happen quick and they happen fast. And oftentimes God does act in that way, but more often than not, God moves slow. Don't fully understand it. One day him and I are going to have a conversation about it. But as the Bible says, God is not slow as some count slowness. But the problem is when we compress these stories, then what we're left with is a God whose goodness is tied to our perception of timing or a God whose goodness is tied to our circumstances. And so the goodness of God, the mercy of God is attached to our timeline, is attached to our perception of outcome. And to be frank, the enemy would love nothing more than to distort how we see God and how we see reality. The enemy doesn't mind if we tell those stories. He just wants us to tell those stories in a very specific way, that it happened quick and that it was painless. And with this, I would argue that to counter the enemy's desire to distort, one of Jesus's aims in coming 
and in being with his friends, with his climbing companions, was bringing his apprentices to the point that they loved and delighted in God as revealed in him. And that they grew in their certainty that there is no catch to God's goodness. There's no catch. There's no limit. It's not a Ponzi scheme. It's not a bait and switch. That we are safe in God's kingdom then and now. And when it required teaching, Christ taught. And when it required friendship, he befriended. And when, in, when where freedom from bondage was required, he set free. And when healing was required, he healed. And when correction was needed, he corrected. And where softened hearts were required, he softened them. And friends, I've seen this happen too much in our time to doubt that it isn't still things that God does. And this brings us to the second movement that the disciples bring this boy to Jesus, verses five through nine. Jesus's aim is for his friends to grow in their understanding and their love and delight in a God to who there is no catch to his goodness. And Jesus, as he's seated, he looks up and he sees a large crowd drawing near. And he asks one of his friends the question, how are we going to feed them all? John lets us in on what Jesus is doing here. Verse six, Jesus said this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered, listen, six months wages wouldn't buy enough food for all of these people to have anything but a little bit. And finally, Andrew, Simon's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But to be honest with you, what are they among so many people? If one of the aims of Jesus is to bring his apprentices to the point of loving and delighting in a God to who there is no catch when it comes to his goodness, I'd argue that one of Jesus's other aims is to drop into the deepest places, our deepest places, in order to name the automatic responses that have been formed in us that are opposed to the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God's kingdom. And not only just to name those things, right? Because sometimes we just stop there or, or others in our lives have just stopped there. But what God longs to do is to cultivate his life in our lives, his way of seeing and understanding the world and the kingdom of God in our seeing. Because, right, this is Paul's point in Galatians 2, that we move from faith in Christ to having the faith of Christ, of seeing the world and seeing God as Jesus saw the world and as Jesus saw God. And what do we know about Jesus? He was willing to name the pain and the suffering. He was willing to name the heartbreak and the injustice, but he wasn't willing to stop there. So what is it about Jesus? What did Jesus see? What did Jesus believe that didn't allow him to stop there? And I think Philip becomes in many ways a test case for this aim of Jesus. Faced with overwhelming need, as Philip looks out on the crowd, he's tempted by scarcity. How can we feed this many people? Even six months wages couldn't even get a little food for all of these people. He looks out and he's tempted by scarcity. And I, I want to be careful because I don't want to, I don't blame him for this. Jesus doesn't even shame Philip for his scarcity. This is part of, of Philip's formation. He has grown up in the margins, impoverished, amongst the people who are overruled by an empire that takes from them. And so Philip has been formed like his friends, like Jesus. Jesus doesn't even shame him. 
And why is this? Well, I'd submit to you it's because Jesus himself had been tempted by scarcity. Right, this is the story in the wilderness where he enters into the liminal wild place and is tempted by the devil. If you're hungry, make bread out of these stones. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted by scarcity. And maybe you're a little bit like me this morning, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to ask you to put it in the chat on Zoom. And if so if it's just me, you can allow me to be the one confessing this morning. But maybe you come into this space this morning, into this room saying something like this. I just don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough. And I think in many ways, the last two and a half years have made this worse. And I think in these moments, we are tempted, to, with, we are tempted with scarcity. And we are, when we are tempted with scarcity, I don't know about you, but my habitual move is toward one of self-pity and self-preservation. Now, what I'm not saying is we don't name our limits. Because God is a God who has no limits, but has created us with limits. So this is not an exhortation to bypass your limits, to shortcut what you're feeling and, and, and sort of um, uh, deny that and shove it to the side. But I think in our act of self-preservation and of self-pity, what we oftentimes do, whether we mean to or not, is recognize our own limits, but to project those limits on God. And yet in the story, what we see is one small boy has fish and bread. And let's be clear, he wasn't the only one with food in the crowd. You have 5,000 people, and you're telling me that only one little boy whose mom or dad probably packed it for him and gave it to him. He was the only one with food. No, what was happening? The crowd knew what Philip knew. There's way, too many there's way too many people here, and I only have so much food, and I'm keeping it for myself. Maybe you're facing a road toward faithfulness and thinking, I just can't take it. Maybe you're facing a shortcut to feeling better, to being better. Maybe you're contemplating doing something reckless. Listen, family, nine times out of 10, when I sit with someone on the back end of having done something reckless, it comes out of this reaction of facing the world through a lens of scarcity and deciding I just have to do something and I just have to act. What I want to say to you is Jesus was tempted in the same way. But I think what Jesus gives us is a way to respond a type of person to become because the reality is is the reality of Matthew 24 of wars and rumors of wars of pestilence and anxiety of life between Eden and new creation the difficulty of that life is not going anywhere and so as followers of Jesus as climbing companions to God in the flesh what is it we are being invited to become and this brings us to the final movement. Jesus feeds the crowd, verses 10 through 14. Jesus instructs the crowd to sit down. In fact, uh, John describes it as sitting down on grass. And I think he's intending for us to think of Psalm 23. He leads us by still waters into pastures. And what does Jesus do? He takes the bread from the little boy and he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. Does it sound familiar at all? We do it every Sunday. Every single Sunday, we take bread, we bless it, we break it and we give it and everyone eats to the full. Jesus conducted a Eucharist. Eucharist, the word simply means gratitude, thanksgiving. 
So when we call this Eucharist, it's because one of the things Jesus seems to always do with bread is to take it, to bless it, to break it, and to give it. Uh, Henri Nouwen, in one of my favorite books of his called The Life of the Beloved, it's a letter to a friend who asked, why should I believe in God? And the approach that Henri Nouwen takes in this little book that you can read in one sitting, and I've done it at least a dozen times, is to take this framework of what Jesus does with bread in order to explain the movements of the spirit and who God has made us and created us and rescued us in order to be. Henri describes as followers of Jesus that we are taken, blessed, broken, and given. That we are taken, that we are chosen by God, drawn in by God. God will not wrangle or force, but invites us into life with the Trinity. We are blessed. In Latin, to bless is the word we use for benediction. It means to, to speak well of someone. But when it comes to God, it's not just God's like, I like that shirt. Haircut, haircut's looking really good. Hey, I really liked how you respond. But rather, it is a word that goes to our very soul that creates and upholds when God looks at us and says, you are the beloved. Broken. It's Jesus' acknowledgement that we all have our broken places, disappointments and wounds, pain and sadness and grief, that we are human beings and to both expect and recognize we carry in our very bodies our sufferings. That we are also given. When we accept our chosenness and receive in God's blessing, then we can bear our brokenness and we can move away from self-centeredness and focus on the other. And I want you to contrast this identity with the distorted lie that is scarcity. That instead of being taken, scarcity calls us to put up walls, resisting God's invitation to take us into his own life. In contrast to being blessed, scarcity blinds us to the blessings and the abundance of God's life and gift in the current moment where we find ourselves, not in some fictitious future, but in reality as it actually is. In contrast to brokenness, scarcity forms us into a people who attempt to shortcut and rush our disappointments, our woundedness, our pain, and our sufferings. And if you go, I don't do that, I would just invite you to pay attention this week to what you do with other people's woundedness and sufferings. Because if you go, it's not really that big of a deal. Have you thought about this, right? That is my, that is one of Shelby and I's, my wife's constant tensions as I'm constantly meeting emotion with fact. And it's not because I'm right. It's because I haven't sat with my own grief, my own sadness. And my wife, who's a little bit more emotionally ahead than I am, who's able to name those things, makes me uncomfortable because it tunes me into the fact that there's places in me that need healing, that need comfort. And so instead of being able to name our woundedness and brokenness, we deny them rather than see our wounds as belonging to Jesus and his wounds belonging to us. And over against givenness, scarcity, because it leads to self-preservation, forms us into a people who hold back our love, our time, our money, and our life, both from God and from God's world. So friends, Jesus knows what it is to both be tempted to face scarcity, to be tempted by self-preservation and self-pity, 
But Jesus also knows in his bones what it is to be taken and blessed and broken and given. Which the good news for me and for you this morning is it changes how we face this temptation. Because we recognize we do not face our temptation alone, that Jesus has been there first, which means he's with us even now. It's one of the reasons why in Romans chapter eight, Paul's big chapter on the Holy Spirit deals so much with current suffering because we have been given the spirit of God who dwells in us as it did Christ. It is what sustained and comforted Jesus in his moment of temptation has also been given to us. So I think there's an invitation in, our, in a moment where it's, so easy to be tempted by scarcity, or if you're like me, to have just plumb given into it. To invite the Holy Spirit to make its presence known in the midst of temptation. And to ask God to give us the ability to see beyond the current moment. And that is only something God can do. And after all, this is the God who heals and redeems and who honors even the smallest step of faith, whether that is five barley loaves, five fish, or a simple cry of help, come, Holy Spirit, come. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.